This whole thing was kind of like Return to Oz and how dark and demented it was compared to the 1939 film. And the nerds were like, but it's true to Frank Baum's books. And everybody was like, yeah, who cares, Neckbeard? We just want the Lollipop Guild. <laughs> I'm Mark Farinas, professional illustrator and animator, and I'm a total jerk. And I'm Ryan T. Riddle, a screenwriter and award-winning journalist, and I, too, am a jerk. And together we crew a ship full of jerks, a podcast about sci-fi and pop culture. Today, we grab our phasers and bring Data's cat home, and no Baby Yoda left behind. It's a big week of finales, so let's get into it. Before we start, Mark and I would like to state our solidarity with the potential writer's strike. The WGA just had a 98% yes vote on authorizing a strike if the studios and streamers don't meet their needs on this upcoming contract. I think you and I are always fully on the side of labor in any situation, but this podcast is about media and entertainment, and the people writing the shows we're talking about are deeply affected by what's happening in Hollywood today. For those who aren't up to date on why this strike is going down, Hollywood writers are really and truly no longer making enough to live. There are several reasons for this, of course. Uh, the biggest is that most shows are streaming now and streaming shows are purchased and run at nauseum, while writers are mostly paid a flat per episode fee. The days of ongoing residuals being paid out as a show spends years in syndication while turning a profit for the studios are nearly gone. There are Star Trek The Next Generation writers still getting checks for their episodes aired worldwide. In the case of streaming shows like Picard, writers are getting much smaller residuals that aren't based on any metric like viewership or popularity. And this is not just about today's Hollywood writers, but the emerging ones and those who've yet to break in. A lot of the writers on our favorite shows are not able to pay the rent. That's just fucking insane. So missing out on some entertainment next year is worth the price of an enormous amount of workers getting a fair living wage. All righty. This week, it's time for me to do some not-so-humble bragging. I made two big calls on the finale. The first was that Jack would join Starfleet because anyone who complains about Starfleet will be in uniform by the end of the story. Them's the rules. I don't make them. The second bigger one was that Jack was going to defeat the Borg via an emotional showdown with his folks where he's talked back to his humanity. Saw it coming the moment they inserted the tubes in his neck. And you were right on both counts, Mark. So please just brag. <laughs> I win the internet. I win the internet this week. You win the internet. So overall, this season of Picard was, to me, miles ahead of the two previous seasons in that its plot was coherent and its character actions and motivations mostly made sense, there's not a lot of holes to pick at here. There were a lot of really brilliant and well-conceived moments in this season, which is frustrating because they came in between a lot of wheel spinning and concepts and themes that I just flat out didn't agree with. But let's start with the good. The humor was always top-notch this season, and the finale was no different. A lot of Worf jokes hit really well, between him suggesting a threesome, uh, stating swords are fun, and falling asleep on the bridge when the action was over. 
I did really like that. It just was like it acknowledged that these are these are old guys and they can't, you know, go running and jumping through a Borg ship without a little fatigue afterwards. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And data session with Troy was also really funny and also poignant as usual. He consistently used to go to Troy for help understanding his journey to humanity throughout the series. These were all extremely next generation style moments of growth and introspection. Once again, it's the character moments between solving the big mystery that I liked the most through throughout the entire season. I thought they were done well. I think all the characters got lines and moments that they should have had on TNG. Uh, and I enjoyed seeing where they are now and how they got there. As Beverly said, a lot has happened in 20 years. And I felt this season handled the fan service a bit better than the previous ones. Although it could get a little too dense with all the references, especially in the return of the King Codas of the finale. Uh, so I, I, I guess Trek is going the way of Marvel with uh, its post credit scene. Can we expect Star Trek Legacy and Paramount Plus's Phase 2? After all these years, we finally get Phase 2, Mark. And it'd be nice to have another Enterprise show again. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I think one of the most surprising things for me about the whole Picard series was how it made me fall in love with the character of Seven and Nine. I didn't really watch much of Voyager after she joined the cast. I'm really glad that they got her out of those gross corsets and bustiers that almost killed Jerry Ryan and turned her into this rugged action star that really suits Ryan's age and physical presence. If there is a Star Trek legacy show, I'll be really happy to watch her lead it. And Seven would be, or is, the first queer female captain of a Starship Enterprise. And I'd welcome a show led by two queer characters, Rafi and Seven. And Jack, I'm still hoping he's queer too. He is the Borg Queen. <laughs> he is the Borg Queen. The boy who would become board queen. <laughs> I think there were only two things that really needed more explanation in this season. The first is why the changelings would want to work with the Borg. There's really no common drive or goal between them except to destroy the Federation. Vengeance is mine. <laughs> I mean to avenge myself upon your car. <sighs> the changelings just act as the villains until the plot doesn't need them anymore and then the Borg take over yeah I wanted a deeper reason beyond just revenge of an old enemy from the changelings I, you know, and I still really had hoped it was they needed Borg tech because they've evolved and they need to create a great link again because they can't link with each other because they're almost like humans that can change shape you know and for a two-hour movie revenge is fine but for a 10-hour epic i felt there could be more deeper motivation there uh the second thing that needed a little more examining was the whole networked ships concept whose utility was never fleshed out what does starfleet gain from networking a bunch of disparate ships with different configurations and missions that are mostly spread out across the galaxy to act as one. It also doesn't make sense as a plot point because the bad guys already have control of the ships via the crew and rebellious ships are destroyed. 
So I don't know. It seems like a point that just was there to say, oh, the Enterprise D is something special. Yeah, which you could have still done without the networking of ships because it is special. (laughs) It's the fat one. Okay, so now what didn't work for me? I was disappointed that the away team to the Borg Cube was a total sausage party. That's Beverly's kid that's on the cube. And just like the countdown to death in the nebula, she's robbed of being there to comfort him. There wasn't really anything that she did on the bridge that she couldn't have done on the cube with a tricorder. We never got a family moment between all three of them. Not to mention there was just a lack of romance this season between Picard and Beverly or Picard and Laris. Also, what happened to Laris? Does it matter? I guess not. Also, (laughs) there was also a lack of romance between Rafi and Seven. I mean, I guess there just wasn't enough time because there was so much being done within 10 episodes. Yeah. So we knew the theme of this season was going to be what the old generation owes the one coming up. And we saw that with Picard needing to make amends to both his son and Ro Laren and even Liam Shaw. But in the end, we cut this weird situation where the kids all become an out-of-control mob of zombies that the old cockers have to save. It's such a strange, paternalistic message that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. And it shows up in the final showdown between Jack and Picard. Now, this ending is inarguably a mirror of the end of Return of the Jedi. We've got the hero ship, in this case, the kilometer-long Enterprise-D, swooping through narrow tunnels to destroy the central core and blow up the whole cube. Meanwhile, father and son are wrestling over right and wrong in front of an aging, decrepit monarch that's constantly taunting them. But Picard's ending unwisely flips the battle because in the case of Luke and Vader, it's the young optimist who saves the old cynical fart who thinks change is impossible. However, here in Picard, it's the old man who believes in the goodness and love that turns the angry young man around. What does that say about the darkness of the Federation Jack grew up in compared to the one Picard lived through? And what does that say about what the authors think the young have to offer society? I do I do think that the messaging gets muddled. I saw it more as a passing of the baton. And maybe I wasn't thinking too much on it as I was watching the show. But I do think you bring up a good point about what is this trying to say about these two generations that have to work together? Yeah, I was thinking of passing of the baton sort of story the young would be a little more aggressive and active in securing their place in history and proving that they are worthy of being that next generation. But I do appreciate that the one thing certainly Picard has given us is that, you know, you can still make a difference no matter how old you are, that there's still time for you to do something in your life even towards the end of it. And I think it's Star Trek Picard is one of the few shows where we have two women in their fifties as the action stars. You know, and I think that's admirable. Bring on Star Trek legacy. (laughs) (laughs) 
But I guess the biggest question for this week's conclusion is Star Trek Picard. Was it a better send-off than Nemesis? Or maybe even all good things? This is what, now our third farewell for the TNG crew? They get more curtain calls than any other cast so far. But to answer the burning question, yes, it was better, more enjoyable than Nemesis. I think anything is better and more enjoyable than Nemesis. But was it better than the first time we said goodbye to the crew of the Enterprise D in All Good Things, Mark? I got to say that I was done with Star Trek Next Generation after All Good Things. I was very satisfied with that conclusion. Um, It was a a perfect note and a perfect bookend to encounter a far point. It sort of lapses in logic aside about, you know, the phenomenon and its growth. But yeah, I was happy with All Good Things. I didn't really need this ending. I don't think anything can top all good things as a final farewell. It does so perfectly with the last shot of the Enterprise crew playing poker and the Enterprise sailing away on more adventures without us, which is the kind of open ending finale I like because there's always a promise of more treks and it's just left to us to imagine what those are. Back to Picard. I think Terry Metalis, the crew and cast did an admirable job giving us a 10-episode romp. But the story might have been stronger had it been a two-hour movie because the serialized format hindered the impact it could have had. I wish the episodes had been more episodic, leading us to the finale than one story spread thin, which is why No Win Scenario will remain my favorite episode of all of Picard. That being said, I did cheer when the Enterprise blew up the Borg radio tower, and I smiled at the ending scene that mirrored the one from All Good Things. So I agree with you completely about the serialization of this series and it not quite working. I think we talked about this from episode one. You know, I want to make it really clear that no one would ever, ever, ever give a putz like me control of a TV show, let alone a major franchise. But if it were up to me... I'd have put everybody on the Enterprise D on episode one with all their kids there as well. You could still have the impetus for taking the ship out, Beverly needing help, and still introduce Picard to his kid that we never met, but do it without all the mystery boxes and special powers and just have 10 episodes of standalone adventures with an underlying arc that doesn't matter much. Because let's face it, the first four episodes of the season were all introduction. The rest were treasure hunting. It was really that last episode that everybody wanted. Why hold that back? Give us 10 hours of that. Yeah, I would have liked it if they were on the Enterprise D from the jump, right? Or at least within three or so episodes. But, you know, it's like a teaser. They got to keep you going so that you make all 10 episodes. (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. Yep. At that, they had to recreate that bridge. So uh, that is that was no easy feat. <laughs> but I think Star Trek works better with a series of little adventures than one big galaxy-ending crisis story. It allows for more variety. It allows us to spend more time with the characters instead of moving from one mystery box to another or having one mystery teased and teased until the final two episodes. After a while, it just all blends together and nothing really sticks, making TV far more disposable than it was in the days of landlines and Betamax machines. I think that they 
could have had, you know, one episode that focused on each member of the crew a little bit. They could have had all of this stuff about passing things on to the next generation where, you know, each character deals with their kid. And over the course of the show, you could have had Picard getting to know Jack, not under some kind of stress, but simply while doing his job, the job that he does best as himself, as captain yeah. of the ship. Yeah. Yeah. Because Picard came alive for, I think, the first time in all three years for me when he was on the bridge of the Enterprise D. Like that felt like, oh, Picard got his mojo back. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I rarely revisit whole serialized seasons, save Babylon 5, which has a very episodic structure that builds into a larger tapestry and tend to more to watch episodes that stand out to me. That being said, I appreciate new showrunners who play with what Star Trek could be. Change, as Dr. McCoy once noted, is the only constant in the universe. But I feel that in this age of serialized TV, the Trek in Star Trek gets a bit lost. Then again, I wish TV in general leaned back into being TV, not a three-act movie across an entire season of episodes. Yeah, they definitely need to do more Star Trek that leaves the Federation's uh, backyard because it just becomes a situation of every episode is about the Federation and sort of deconstructing the utopia of it because it's in your face. I think that utopia was originally just a background, a sort of world-building thing that wasn't supposed to be looked at that hard because we, as people 300 years in its past, could never possibly understand where society could go. So why bother even trying? Right. And just send those characters out into the world and vaguely hint at the utopia while really dealing with the politics of other planets. Yeah. I, there used to be a rule in the original series that we'll never go to Earth, right? I think it's in the Bible. Uh, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but there is a, a thing where like, we will never see Earth. That, to be honest, we don't really need to because that's not where the stories are, right? It's it's like, it's, it's like I think, it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it in the motion picture novelization, Gene Roddenberry says something about like, the throwbacks who join Starfleet join because there's no real challenge anymore on Earth. There's nothing to push against. There's nothing to grow. It's already perfect. Yes, and he writes that Earth is mostly populated by these people called new humans, which are different in ways that we don't really understand and is not really gotten into. But yes, Starfleet crew are said to be a kind of unevolved group of people who like to go out into space don't get uh, too wrapped up in alien cultures and seek adventure. Yeah, that's what Star Trek needs, some good old adventuring. Now, we've said this a few times here before, but I don't feel like this was a Next Generation sequel. Not in tone or in plot points or in callbacks. It was really a Deep Space Nine sequel, but with no one from Deep Space Nine actually in it. It was extremely dark. It focused a lot on the underbelly of Starfleet. It turned the Daystrom Institute into a Frankenstein lab. So I had to think hard about who the audience for the sequel was because it wasn't for Next Generation fans. It was really for what I would call hardcore Trekkie completists. 
And people are going to say to me, Mark, that's your problem if you didn't watch half of D-Space 9 or Voyager or any of Enterprise. And to them, I would respond, most of the 11 million people who saw Next Generation in first run, like my dad and all the kids who came over for watch parties at my place, saw even less of that follow-up material. And I'm pretty sure they didn't watch this. This reunion wasn't for any of those who especially tuned in to Next Generation, not because they like Star Trek or even science fiction, but because of its light, kind, optimistic worldview. This should have been a wide appealing reunion like one would make for Friends or Seinfeld, but instead it was very narrow in its appeal. And that doesn't speak to the quality of the writing. Like I said, this season was better than the two that preceded it by leaps and bounds. It just wasn't really for someone like me. I, I, I do agree. I felt like this was more of a Deep Space Nine sequel for the majority of it. And then we have the Snoke is revealed to be the Borg Queen. And I probably would have liked a little more of that old school Star Trek optimism within this within the story you know more of the we can make a difference if we just work together and have compassion toward each other yeah yeah so i guess we return to the question we started i enjoyed this farewell better than nemesis at least i was entertained this time unlike with nemesis i really don't like that film can you tell i i'm right there with you ryan and I saw it twice for some reason. I don't know why. I wanted to leave the theater in the middle of it, but I was like, all right, I'll finish it. I'll finish it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is a film I have not seen since the theater. No. And probably never will again. Another showdown between Moff Gideon and Bo-Katan on this week's Mandalorian. And the Mandalorian was involved in that showdown. I'm glad that we've taken back Mandalore so we can get back to some good old Din Djarin and Din Grogu singular adventures. This episode was exciting, much like the Picard finale, but I do have a bit of pew-pew fatigue after watching two big finales. For me, I, I don't really like it when the big battle is saved for the last episode because it always feels like a race to an ending, and that gets exhausting after a while. And I understand saving it for last. More planning, more budget, and all that. Overall, I found this season entertaining. Uh, they visited some really interesting not-desert worlds and met a bunch of kooky and fun villains in the process. I'm still hoping that Gorian Shard will be back in future installments, and more Lizzo, Jack Black, and Christopher Lloyd would be welcome. I really did like the initial return to Mandalore, even if its reclamation was a standard sky-ground battle pairing. Jaren and Bo-Katan are a power couple, and having them together most of the season was a treat. It's a shame she's going to be weighed down as a planetary leader from here on out. Even when the episodes didn't work, Pedro Pascal and Katie Sacktoff's chemistry completely did. Yeah, they had, they had a great energy together, and I kept thinking... That, oh, Grogu now has an adoptive mother, too. Because, <laughs> especially when he was saving both of them from the fire. I was like, oh, look, it's a family portrait. 
but I feel like I've been through battle myself this week. <laughs> Both Picard and Mandalorian gave us great codas where we get to spend extra time with the characters before saying goodbye. But in comparing the final battles, I feel like Mandalorian's choreography allowed us to follow the action. I always feel the danger with big action pieces with a lot of ships or armies that things get lost. Whether it's following Bo-Katan and the M-Team or the Titan through a fleet of ships, sometimes all of that just vanishes when they're in this sea of similar shapes or mass. Uh, and, and to compare the serialized stories, I feel Mandalorian gave us a bit more of that episodic gotta-get-the-thing quest than Picard. Mando felt more like TV, whereas... Picard aimed for a more cinematic experience and was successful in varying ways, as we've mentioned. The uh, finale as a whole didn't impress me much. Like we discussed last week, both sides are just a bunch of faceless anybodies that I don't have much sympathy for. And it's a funny turn for Star Wars because originally the bad guys were in masks specifically so that you don't identify with them and you don't mind when they die. A flock of faceless heroes just doesn't work. The aerial fight between the Mando cultists and the Imperials was actually less personal than a spaceship battle because in those, you at least get an occasional peek inside the cockpit. Yeah, it's it's why Superman doesn't wear a mask. You gotta you gotta see the face to trust them. It's why Spider-Man takes his mask off every five minutes. <laughs> Everybody knows he's Spider-Man now. Oh, wait, got, they, they retcon that. <laughs> you got to see who you're paying for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got, I want to, I would like to see the baby. <laughs> and man, ever since Phantom Menace, Star Wars has been in love with either murdering children or putting them in extreme danger. And the Mandalorian <laughs> is not bucking that trend. <laughs> I couldn't help feeling all of chapter 24 was putting Grogo in situations a baby definitely shouldn't be in. And that's been a thing in the past, but usually just because others are specifically after him. Yeah. You know, he usually sits out the dangerous stuff, like on the direct democracy orgy planet. Now he is actively fighting. And I don't think i like the fact that these crazy mercenary people are indoctrinating this kid to be a child soldier it just icks me out on a number of levels mark you just got to go back to the to the basic truth about the mandalorians we are klingons <laughs> when you're a jet you're a jet all the way from your first cigarette <laughs> to your last dying day see you get it you get it i get it <laughs> i get it so let's let's talk about Moff Gideon and how this fight with him was just sort of eh, for me at least I didn't buy that this old guy could handle two younger trained warriors and this is the second season in a row where we see his Jedi experiments but never witness them in action Jaren just destroys them on sight it's incredibly anticlimactic I mean making Jedi don't you think that that's a really cool concept and they've been pushing it for three seasons and we never got to see it well, you know, speaking of child endangerment, I did love that moment when Grogu did save his space dad. 
And, you know, and he got that cute moment when he saw the IG head at the flight jock bar. Uh, and I see they found a replacement for Cara Dune in the show. Be a transphobe and get replaced by a robot. Actually, I wouldn't mind replacing all transphobes in real life with more compassionate, empathetic robots. Anti-Semitic transphobe, Ryan. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Get I, it. I, get it right. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, it was great to see Appa. Looks like we're going to get more of him in the next season as he teams up with Mando to go after the other Empire remnants. But I have a suspicion, and I think you also brought this up last week with Dave Filoni's Star Wars movie. We're probably not done with the longer story arcs, but at least we're going to get some side questing again. Yeah, I'm coming away from this season the way I came away from the previous one, wondering why they couldn't have given us a Moff Gideon who somehow succeeded in giving himself force powers. In both cases, it would have been a way more interesting and even match. In any case, yeah, I'm also happy that The Mandalorian has plainly stated that it will be returning to Adventure of the Week format next year. I only hope that they keep that promise. But that depends. Do you think Moff Gideon is really dead? Or was that just one of his clones? That's right. I sent you that theory, mm -hmm. which I can't really disagree with, that no, uh, this Moff Gideon did not have a mustache, and neither yeah. did his tank clones. Yes. And so it's possible that who we saw die is in fact a clone of Moff Gideon, but where was his force powers then? That's it for this week. I'm Ryan Riddle, a jerk. And I'm Mark Farinas, also a jerk. Our music you wish was your theme song is by Fluffy. You can find all her other work at sockpuppet.us, and you can find me at Trek Comic on Twitter. And I'm Ryan T. Riddle on Twitter. Did you hear something you agreed with or disagreed with or just want to give a shout out? You can find the podcast on Twitter, too, at Shipful of Jerks. And just a public service announcement. We won't be back next week, but we will return the week after where we take a deeper dive into the first season of Strange New Worlds in anticipation of the second season on June 15th.